we were left in the really precarious place of having to be so excited to fall in love with him and want everything for him that every parents want while at the same time preparing to uh, have him die at some point. So it was really um, that time from 16 weeks until he was born was such a journey of suffering and uncertainty and grief, but also joy and beauty because every day he was alive, we rejoiced while having to accept that every hour he was alive could be his last. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. This time of year, we often think of our loved ones and how they have impacted our lives. I am grateful for you and all the ways that you have enriched my life. It's also a time of reflection. There's a lot of introspection and evaluation as we close out the year and think about what went well what didn't, and what we'd like to do differently in the new year. As I've been reflecting on my Share Your Story podcast, I have decided to change things up a bit. Starting in January, we will be moving from a weekly schedule to releasing an episode every other week with special subscription-only content on some of the off weeks. So make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. Another change will be the quality of my interviews. Not only will the stories and experiences of my guests be more meaningful and impactful, I will be sharing more of my insights and perspectives on grief as well. Because the episodes tend to be longer as far as podcasts go, moving to a bi-weekly schedule will give you, the listeners, more time to process and reflect on the information and insights we share during our conversations. And as always, if you would like a travel buddy and a guide to accompany you in your own grief journey, visit my website, grievingcoach.com, to schedule a time to chat with me. Together, we will begin by finding one simple tool that you can implement today to help you in your individual journey in your own unique way. May you all feel loved and supported, especially through this time of the year. A special thanks goes out to the nonprofit organization Reimagine who has built and supports a community to talk about things like grief and adversity and loss and all those other uncomfortable topics that we face in life. So I hope this will be an interactive experience wherever you're listening in, that you will be able to take tidbits and notes and nuggets from the things that we say and apply them into your own lives. Today's guest is Elizabeth Leon, a writer, speaker, and musician from Ashburn, Virginia. She is the author of Let Yourself Be Loved, Big Lessons from a Little Life, and she's also the founder of The Journey of the Beloved. 
She has been a leader in ministry and faith formation for more than 25 years and desires to inspire others to tell the truth about their story of suffering, grief, and harm in order to find freedom and healing through Christ. Her gift is her willingness to be vulnerable and love with a heart wide open, despite the brokenness of divorce, death, and abuse. Elizabeth and her husband Ralph are the parents of 10 children, five of hers, four of his, and their son John Paul Raphael, who died in 2018. In her book, Elizabeth cracks open the, the landscape of grief to reveal a love story. She invites readers deeply into her personal journey and invites them to consider grief, uncertainty, and suffering as a pathway to joy. Her passion is sharing her story. She is a frequent speaker at, mom, at women's events in Northern Virginia. Let Yourself Be Loved, Big Lessons from a Little Life is available wherever books are sold. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'm already looking forward to talking with you. <laughs> Me too. And if I have squeals, moments of squeals and excitements, that's totally normal. So just, <laughs> just a heads up. <laughs> Um, first of all, where can people find you? Okay, sure. Well, in real life, as you said, I am in North Virginia. I live in Ashburn, but most people would want to perhaps find me online. I am, my website is elizabethleon.org. I also have a blog, which is the title of my book, letyourselfbeloved.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Instagram at letyourselfbeloved1690. And I can tell you a little bit more about that special number later. Wonderful. So why don't you start now? What's what's special about 1690? <laughs> okay, that is a great question. So 1,690 is the number of minutes that our son, John Paul Raphael, lived in 2018. Um, as you mentioned in the bio that you read, my husband, Ralph, and I, we were married in 2013. We're a second marriage for both of us. My first husband left me and, and our family the same summer that his first wife died. So we eventually made our way to one another and began a beautiful, heartfelt, you know, soulmate-found second marriage for both of us. Um, but we did bring nine grieving children together, which at the time of our marriage, the kids were six to about 24 in age. And they, you know, all along in the middle of that. Uh -huh. And life was pretty crazy. And we were uh, trying to deal with a lot of grief for them, grief and trauma for both of us with everything that we've been through. Um, but we were very delighted to find that I was pregnant in the spring of 2017. I was 45 at the time. So you all can do the math on that. <laughs> and my husband, Ralph was 52. So we were, um, well, not really, really surprised, a little bit surprised <laughs> that yeah. we were now expecting a baby, um, but overjoyed, overjoyed. I mean, we truly both have just found our heart's resting place in the other. So it just was so beautiful to be so in love and to be welcoming, welcoming a little boy. I am of advanced maternal age. However, even at that time, they called it geriatric. So we had all of the prenatal testing done so that we could have as much information possible going through a middle-aged pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And we found out at about 16 weeks that our little boy had a condition known as trisomy 18. 
It's a condition where every cell of his body has three copies of the 18th chromosome. And it's a condition that is always life limiting. Mm. With that diagnosis, we were not given any hope that he would have a long, healthy, normal life that was completely taken off the table. Um, Most of these little babies die in the womb. Some live to be born alive. Very, very few, although some go on to live a number of years, but that's very, very rare. Um, We were really given um, a death sentence when we received the diagnosis. It was just a matter of when that would happen. So obviously that um, immediately plunges you into a whole world that no parent ever wants to be a part of a world of not just the medical aspect. And and that was a whole another story, but the, the world of uncertainty and powerlessness and surrender and anticipatory grief, even of this little baby that we loved so much. We found out he was a boy and we named him. He has a very big name, John Paul Raphael Leon. Um, John Paul Raphael, we loved so much, um, but we were left in the really precarious place of having to be so excited to fall in love with him and want everything for him that every parents want while at the same time preparing to uh, have him die at some point. So it was really um, that time from 16 weeks until he was born was such a journey of suffering and uncertainty and grief, but also joy and beauty because every day he was alive, we rejoiced while having to accept that every hour he was alive could be his last. Yeah. So how did you hold space for both the intense grief and pain and also the joy and relishing every moment that you had? Yes. Well, I think one of the things that really helped both of us is um, the fact that I'll just speak for me personally, um, having been through a very unwanted and dramatic and traumatic divorce several years prior, I had some experience already of how to walk through a season of suffering that you didn't want, that you couldn't stop, and that was changing your life in ways that you you were not wanting to welcome. So I had some practice in that. And for me, as a a Christian, I'm a a Roman Catholic, I had a very strong and deep faith already. Mm -hmm. And going through the process of a very unwanted divorce that involved, you know, my first husband's infidelity and all kinds of like just yucky mess. um, I had learned something already of how to walk through that kind of trauma and how to learn to live moment by moment, hour by hour. Mm-hmm. Um, how to surrender my heart to God, how to um, incorporate grief on a daily basis into my life and just find ways to get through it. You know, for instance, in the, the years after my divorce, long before John Paul was born, you know, every weekend when my younger kids would go to spend it with their dad and they would walk out the door on Friday and the door would close, you know, I, a wave of grief hit me in the face every other weekend, year after year. 
And it was a matter of just learning to hold it and giving myself, like you use the phrase, give myself space to what I need to do right then is to sink onto the floor and cry it out. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. If I needed to go open a bottle of wine, some days I did that. If I needed to go be out and hike and be in the fresh air. And then once I was remarried, I mean, Ralph and I, my husband, Ralph, really did make the most of those weekends where we never wanted to be on our own, but there was still time and space to make a choice to do something beautiful. Yeah. So I think those same coping strategies that I had learned already were present in our journey with Jean-Paul Raphael in that we wanted to celebrate and be excited for this beautiful baby. So we did, um, we did lots of little things. I didn't buy a lot. We didn't decorate a nursery, but I brought a beautiful blue blanket. We bought one little yellow duck. Um, we started gathering songs and we took pictures of my belly wherever we went. Like we might not ever have him alive in our arms to take pictures, but every trip we took, it was, my belly was photographed more so than any time before <laughs> just to, to honor and celebrate his presence with us for every day that we had. Um, and then at the same time, I needed to face my fears where I called a funeral home pretty early in my pregnancy. I was so scared of that that I decided about 22 weeks, I'm like, I'm just going to call. I want to talk to them. I want to have the conversation. I just want to know. So it felt less scary. Mm -hmm. So I tried to be a little bit proactive with some of the things that lurked out there Yeah. to make them be less familiar, uh, less scary and a little bit more familiar. Mm -hmm. Sure. And for the mo most part, that was helpful, but we also just had to let ourselves be however we were. It was really a lot of radical acceptance for this very, very painful place that we were being held in. You know, I had a household of six children at the time. So it was all the business of that. I had all the medical things that we were dealing with. We just had such a tender space that my husband and I held together for this beautiful little boy and our hopes for him. Um, we just tried to protect it as much as we could. And I know that sounds very vague, <laughs> but it also, we just learned to hold our hope along with our fear. It was the only way yeah. we could get through day to day. But I realized I did not actually answer the question about 1,690 minutes. <laughs> so as we made our through this really, really challenging journey of a, a pregnancy where you, we expect our little boy to die, our prayer was always that he be born alive. So there's a lot of different ways medically to manage a pregnancy like this. And we surrounded ourselves with doctors and a community of professionals that completely supported our goal to do everything we could to continue the pregnancy as long as possible with the goal that he be born alive. So we had a lot of ultrasounds. We had a lot of tests. We were very, very fortunate and privileged to have excellent medical care and access to all of that. But near the end of my pregnancy, I mean, I made it to 36 weeks, which was a miracle. We just didn't, we didn't know every day. I would just hold the belly and love him and try to just be grateful for this day mm -hmm. or even this part of the day. 
But at 36 weeks, all of our scans revealed that John Paul was not growing anymore. He was, we knew he was going to be small. He was always going to be a little tiny niblet of a baby, but he had not gained any weight, which was our clue that something in his body was not going right anymore. So we were at a crossroads where the medical community needed us to decide what we wanted to do. Do we want to deliver him right away in hopes, our goal to have him born alive? Do we want to wait? Do we want to see what would happen? And it sounds ridiculous that we even considered waiting, but I was so terrified because to pick what day he would be born to say, yes, let's go to the hospital right now meant that I had to face his inevitable death. We just knew that welcoming him also meant I had to be ready to lose him. And of course I wasn't ready. Right. But we were very grateful that God took that decision out of our hands because the day after we got that news, we were kind of stuck in this really impossible choice of what do we do? When do we do it? What's best for our family? Uh, My water broke the next morning. We were immediately in an emergency situation because of a, a variety of conditions that I had been dealing with already in my body. And we got to the hospital and they couldn't find a heartbeat. We got there about 10 a.m. on a Thursday morning, frigidly cold Thursday morning in Northern Virginia. And they had me like that in the operating room and he was born at 10.33 a.m. And the crazy thing is that the pictures, someone got my camera. I don't even know who, it might've been an angel. Someone got my camera and took videos and pictures in the delivery room, but they show a baby that is gray and lifeless and not moving. And he showed no signs of life upon delivery. But like I said, we are believers. And my husband pulled out a bottle of holy water that we brought with us. And he baptized him right there in the operating room. And after that, he breathed. So we call that a miracle. Now, I don't know, was his heart beating and he just didn't look alive? We don't know. But John Paul Raphael was alive at 1033 a.m. And he stayed with us for 28 hours and 10 minutes before he died in our arms the next day. So we got 1,690 minutes of total joy, just full, full on joy of this beautiful little baby that we are so grateful to have and to love. So amazing. Like so many parts of that is incredible. And I don't even have words. <laughs> <laughs> It was just such a profound privilege when I, uh, there were so many things that could have gone wrong mm-hmm. um, and didn't go wrong. And one of the things I'm so grateful for that I think really is, is just grace is that that time in the hospital, those 28 hours and 10 minutes from 10.33 a.m. on Thursday until 2.43 p.m. on Friday, there was no fear. That was for me the most shocking thing that all of that anticipatory grief and all of the uncertainty and that agony of being in the what's going to happen place. Um, I mean, I think many of us have had that experience, right, of your your anticipatory fear and the anxiety you have about something is far worse than the actual thing. Mm -hmm. So once John Paul was here, it just all went away. I can't explain why I was not worried one minute about how long he was gonna live. We were just so completely absorbed in our baby and being so grateful to have this time with him. And we had eight of our nine other children were there 
four of his grandparents, some aunt and uncles. My, my daughter has a service dog. The dog was in the room. I mean, it was crazy. It was total mayhem, um, total mayhem for those two days. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just so much love and joy. That's so, so much love incredible. and joy. And then unfortunately, his time was up at, um, it was probably a little bit after one o'clock on Friday when we first noticed that he was struggling to breathe. And we had really educated ourselves. We knew that most trisomy 18 babies die of apnea where for some reason their brain just does not tell the body to breathe. Mm. There is no medical explanation for this and there's absolutely nothing that can be done. So part of the work that we had done during my pregnancy was to prepare ourselves with a lot of intentional thought and education for what we were going to do when our son didn't breathe. Because of course the inclination that every parent would have would be to do something fix it. There are ventilators, put them on a ventilator. Let's, let's fix this right now. Get, make yeah. him breathe. Yeah. Um, but we also knew that with a condition like trisomy 18, there is no changing the fact that his brain won't tell his body to breathe. I mean, mm -hmm. if we put him on a ventilator, you are either suggesting he will stay on a ventilator for his entire life, or you're suggesting that you will have to take them off at some later date. And I, and I, I believe there are probably some very good reasons why parents choose that, but we didn't have any of those compelling reasons. And we really wanted to just celebrate this little boy, the way he came to us with the limitations on his life. So we made the very clear, but difficult decision that when he did not breathe, we were simply going to allow his body to take the course of action that it needed to. Mm -hmm. And as ready as I was, there's no way you can be prepared for that truly. I mean, we knew what to expect yeah. clinically and medically, but we just didn't know how it would be for us or even when it would be. Mm -hmm. But it turned out to just be a very beautiful experience. Uh, we were wrapped in the community of our family. There were about seven of us that were there at the time, including his nurse, who had just been so devoted to us during those two days. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful, holy death. Um, really one of the most beautiful and holy things I've ever known in my whole life. The, the most painful. Yeah. But both of those, both of those together. Um, and I have said, and I have written in my book that when it is my time to die someday, like I pray that I go like John Paul did, wrapped in the embrace of my family, having just only known peace and love it was um, beautiful and heartbreaking and sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so amazing to me that you're able, that you were able to hold space for all of it mm -hmm. so beautifully throughout the entire journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really hard to look back and, um, find something concrete. So I'm like, if you do these three things, it makes it easier. Um, honestly, mm -hmm. I think it was, my life had been a preparation for these moments. Like I, I shared with my divorce, but even just the struggles I had been through personally, the wrestling I had done with God already, the faith community we had surrounded ourselves with. I mean, one of the things that I felt like I was able to do was to put language around what we were going through. So I was pretty transparent with 
our community through email, our friends and our family, even on Facebook of just like, this is the suffering that we have. And this is what we need. Um, please pray for us. Like we just, we had been prepared by our life already to know when we needed to lean on our community mm-hmm. and to ask for help. And so I have no doubt that so many people were praying for us and we're just, we knew we had so much support And I am so, so grateful for that because I know there are truly many people that walk through circumstances like this, um, very alone. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but I do believe that part of the reason that I can sit here in front of you really feeling full of joy was that I had so much support and knowing how to hold both of those things. I mean, one of the things I did do that was super helpful as I was connected with a doula, a birth and bereavement doula. So she had special training in how to step through some of these hard times in pregnancy. And so she really, really prepared us um, having lost several children herself for the different kinds of things you can do to make it a beautiful time, not just a tragic time, mm-hmm. but also a beautiful time. So she helped us prepare for making the footprints and doing the handprints. And um, we recorded his heartbeat and we took a lock of his hair and we had a playlist ready of music. We really engaged our five senses, even mm-hmm. um, like when we were in Italy during my pregnancy, my husband had found a cologne in one of the Catholic cathedrals that he loved the smell of it. And it's so funny because Ralph is not fussy like that. He doesn't care what kind of cologne or product he wear, but he loved his cologne. And he said, I want to buy this for John Paul. I said, okay. So we began to spray that cologne everywhere we went with John Paul. We sprayed his blankie. We sprayed it during the doctor's appointments. We sprayed it all over the hospital room when we were there. And it really embedded the scent of its sandalwood, the scent of sandalwood into our memories and our bodies of our experience with our baby. So now, I mean, I still sleep with that beautiful blue blanket every night. Like last night I got in bed and I said, oh, did you spray the blanket? So that smell of sandalwood takes us back so powerfully to those beautiful moments. I, mean, I would never have thought of that to use yeah, a uh-huh. attach us to the, to the joy of our son's life so that when we were in grief, we would have that to hold on to. So we had a, a lot of support and a lot of great suggestions. That's so amazing. One of the things that I find through like through working with all of my clients in my personal life is the fact that our experiences prepare us for the experiences that will happen. Like everything that happens to us, positive, negative, hard, wonderful, joyful, every experience helps prepare us for who we are meant to be and the experiences Mm -hmm. that we'll have along the way. Mm Mm-hmm. It is amazing when we're open to it, I think, especially when Mm -hmm. we can, um, you kind of have a mindset and open our hearts to the possibility that the good things in my life, the bad things in my life, the hard things in my life, they all have something to teach me that can be valuable if I can open my eyes and heart to receive it. That's so true. Yeah. What have you found that's been most surprising? 
about your journey through grief? So you mentioned my book and um, the subtitle of the book is Big Lessons from a Little Life. Let Yourself Be Loved, Big Lessons from a Little Life. But it had an original subtitle that was um, How the Darkness of Grief Led Me to Peace, Purpose, and Joy. And I ended up changing the subtitle for a variety of reasons. But that to me is one of the most surprising things. Mm -hmm. Like I knew, I didn't know, but I expected grief to be terrible. Yeah. I mean, and I was a woman that I, I managed this pregnancy. Like I over managed my anticipatory grief, <laughs> which, you know, had some of its own complications, but other than reading books on grief and reading blogs on grief and what reading or watching movies about other people that had lost babies or children, like that was all I could do to prepare, which was all excellent information, but I had no idea at all how it was going to affect me. Mm. Like, how was this actually going to feel? So I, I was pretty scared of it. I was pretty scared of what the impact of grief in my life would be. And, um, you know, for sure, the first two years of grief were no joke. I mean, yeah. they were as it was as bad as I expected it to be. I can't say that it was worse because I, I don't it, it was as bad as it could be. I don't know that it could have been worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was very surprised and I talk about this a lot in the book, I was very surprised that the second year of grief was worse. Like people had told me that, or I'd read it, I'd heard yeah. it, yeah. but I just thought in the first year of grief, you literally don't think you're going to survive some days. You can't, re- your body is shutting down. You can't remember things. You're just completely caught in a tidal wave of being out of control and in every way, like you just think it can't possibly be worse than this. Mm-hmm. They have to be wrong. Um, and yet it, it was true that it was worse. And what I, what I could kind of articulate for myself was it felt worse because if the first year of grief was a tidal wave, a forest fire, like a raging inferno that just, um, sweeps everything into it and and life as you knew it is shattered forever at least there was motion there was something active mm-hmm. i mean a fire is alive even though it's de- devastating and terrifying right mm-hmm. and a tidal wave it's moving you and pushing you and you're like there is stuff happening the first year of grief is you know surviving the first week and the first month and it's the, getting through each new holiday all of it is a march towards um, what for us was the birthday and the death day, which were very close together. So it was this mm-hmm. momentum from when he died until when we would celebrate that first anniversary. Yeah. And it was all so hard. But year two was just like the wasteland after the fire. Mm. Like year two was like, you're not in a wave anymore. You just spit on the shore. And you're just lying there with no energy and a dark depression came that it just engulfed everything in a way that life just was terrible, but dead terrible. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean that to be overly dramatic, but I was so surprised. And in that year too, you just think, is the whole rest of my life going to be like this? I mean, this is it. This is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Because 
I love my son. He's always going to be gone. This will never change, right? Um, but I think in giving myself over to that and just, again, practicing the surrender of this is what grief feels like for me today, practicing that without self-judgment, without self-criticism, without deciding it's been 15 months, so I shouldn't need this, or I shouldn't have to do that. Um, that was some great, great advice I had gotten early on from another mother who had lost a son. So this is what grief looks like today, practicing curiosity and kindness. And that allowed me to um, kind of very organically experience what it was, was just happening to me without trying to manage it too much, which mm-hmm. That was not easy for me. That was one of the biggest things I have learned <laughs> through grief. Yeah. That's how to stop managing everything. Um, and then, you know what? The life did start to sprout again. Hope did start to come back. And what I found was, you know, much like the metaphor of this forest fire, like a forest is healthier and more vibrant for having been cleared by the fire, mm-hmm. which is so counterintuitive. But my husband and I would have this argument where I would say, this is the worst thing that ever happened to us, wasn't it? This is the worst thing. And he wouldn't always agree with me. Like, I think he was just hesitant to give it like that final of a label. I think in his head, he was probably thinking there could be worse things. Like, I'm not quite sure what, but they probably exist. But as time went on, I really wrestled with that. I thought, well, wait a minute. Like, John Paul was love and beauty and light. Like we adored our son. And in this wasteland of grief, like I'm learning how to be a nicer person. I'm learning how to find the beauty in life. I'm learning how to slow down. I mean, grief didn't just slow me down. It stopped me. Mm-hmm. And all those things I was racing through in my life before I realized, wait a minute, I'm missing the beauty in my whole life. Um, so then I started to find all of these beautiful things and our love for our son lived on even with the grief. So like that was beautiful. So slowly, I couldn't really say with conviction anymore that it was the worst thing. Um, was it terrible that he died? Yes. But it was so beautiful that he lived and I would never want to go back to where he never lived. Mm Mm-hmm. Never, ever, ever. There was too much beauty and goodness and joy from this beautiful son of ours. Um, So I had to find a way to accept that both those things could exist at the same time. I could both be always grieving him and still learn how to be alive, more alive than I was before he was born and died. So that was very surprising. What led you to that? Um, my mind keeps um, chewing on the how. How did you come to be able to hold space for the incredible grief and the incredible joy and love? Mm. I wish I had a really clear answer. Um, I know that it was a journey of faith. I mean, absolutely. This was in every way surrendering to 
the plans that God had allowed for my life. I'm not ever going to say that God causes a death, like the death of my son. That's not it at all, but Mm -hmm. um, he allowed it. And I had to wrestle with, um, was, does that mean, is he still good? Does he still love me? Does he still love our family? Is he still on the throne? Like, are all these, like, so I wrestled with all those really, really big questions. And because my answer was that life is still beautiful. Like the love, it really, for me, it went back to those 28 hours and 10 minutes. And I really wrestled with that. Like, why, how could they possibly be so beautiful when we knew our son could die at any minute? And I think the key was that we just were so present for whatever reason we were given the grace and we prepared ourselves enough that we could be in the present moment. We were no longer back in that hard, painful pregnancy and we weren't yet in the what will happen next. Mm -hmm. We just were held right now. And I think the more I could see that that's where the beauty was. The beauty was in this present moment and not rushing ahead or in spending too much time being attached to what was gone behind us. Um, Again, it's a little tricky for me, the whole phrase of the present moment, because of course my son is never going to be present moment again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I can't say that I don't go back. I do go back, but I, I go back in a way to allow both the beauty and the tragedy of that season to be more alive in my heart today. I don't know if that makes sense to connect yeah, it does. to it. Yeah. To just uh, find a connecting point to bring the love into right now. So I don't know that I have a really good how other than um, it was a faith journey for me and also just being present to what these moments had to offer us and soaking them, soaking them in and trusting Trusting that even if they're painful moments, they can still be a teacher and that perhaps these painful moments will birth something beautiful in the future. Having that hope, Mm -hmm. that might be part of it. Yeah. I think you just answered your question. Like, (laughs) I think think that's a beautiful description of the how. Mm -hmm. It's a faith journey. It's being present. It's all the preparation that you did beforehand. It's mm-hmm. trusting the journey, trusting the process, trusting the experience. Mm-hmm. It's the surrender and it's the hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, being honest, like that's a big thing for me. If you, if anybody asks me my three key values, they are faith, courage, and honesty. And for me, it was really, really important to be honest about what grief was and to be honest about what love was. Like I said before, that radical compassion of this is what grief looks like today. Like we put, you know, with the help of the world and social media and culture and all that, we put so many expectations and constraints on ourselves, what we should and should not do, what we should and can and cannot feel. So many. So, um, I think it was just giving over to surrendering to my feelings, but also really being honest about what they were, whether that was anger or rage or despair or joy or hope or laughter. I mean, funny things of one of my favorite pictures from John Paul's funeral 
is I have my head thrown back and I'm laughing, like full on laughter. Like I have no idea who said what or why we had a photographer there, why she chose to take a picture of me cracking up at my son's funeral. But I love it because that's what life is. It's all of it together. It's all just one big, beautiful mess. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's one big, beautiful mess. It is. It is. <laughs> so as we wrap up our time together, what's the best advice you would give someone who has experienced the loss of a child or who is at any point in the earlier stages, the one to two years of their grief journey of the forest fire, the tidal wave, or the deadness right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I've covered already, but I'm going to reiterate it is that that honesty of that radical self-compassion and being very real about what it is that you're going through. It is super easy to just decide that how we're feeling is not acceptable. And There are very few times in our life where I think we give ourselves permission to just be who we are. But when you've lost a child, that's one of those times. I mean, just think about that. If you, um, normally if someone, you know, sends you a text and they ask you a question, if you haven't answered it in a week, you know, they're maybe a little bit annoyed or miffed that you haven't bothered to get back to them. But after a devastating loss, people give you lots of permission to not have to be a certain way, but it's harder, I think, to extend that to ourselves. Yeah. So I think um, really telling the truth about this, like radically life altering event that has taken place um, and not just grieving the loss of the person or the relationship, but grieving the loss of yourself because that's a huge part of it is that we don't just miss, I don't just miss my baby. For a long time, I missed who I was before I knew grief. I missed that for a long time. And I think the grieving process needs to contain grieving that you will never be the same. Yeah. But with the hope that you can be more than you ever thought was possible. So um, entering fully into that grief, but always holding on to, this is going to be terrible, but it doesn't have to just be terrible. I mean, the new subtitle for the book, Big Lessons from a Little Life, I ended up changing it, um, mostly because I didn't really want the book to be about me. I mean, it is a book, You, you know my story from reading the book. Yeah. But, my hope for the book, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback about this, is that in reading it, people begin to give themselves permission to be more honest about their own experiences of sorrow, whether that's the loss of a child or not. That could be the loss of a marriage, the loss of a job, the loss of a pet, the loss of a parent, um, the loss of a dream that's not yeah. going to come true. So I think a lot of times, you know, when we say to someone, oh, I'm so sorry that happened, people say, it's okay. Well, you know what? It's not okay. Like it's not okay. 
but it's, it's okay that it's not okay. I know that's one of those great grief books mm-hmm. out there. I think by Meg Devine, like it's okay that yeah. it's not okay. We can expand our horizon for what is okay in our life. We can expand it so that like, it's okay to be happy and sad on the same day. It's okay to have rage about what happened to you. Sometimes the, the best thing and the worst thing are, are the same thing. And yeah. that's a mind bender, but it's also true. So, you know, my advice to someone in those early, early days is just hold on. Hold on to whatever it is that you need to hold on to, whether that's a blanket or I have my little monkey with this. <laughs> this is my weighted comfort monkey. He weighs four pounds and one ounce, just like John Paul did. Oh, <laughs> and amazing. Wearing, he's kind of funny shaped. He's wearing the nightgown that John Paul wore during the only day he lived with us. So like, I still have monkey. He is very close by. I'm a 50 year old woman and I sleep with a monkey and a blanket, but you know what? That's what I need to get through um, the way my life is right now. So hold on to whatever it is that you need to hold on to for as long as you need to hold on to it. And just have hope that it does get not better. It gets brighter. The light will come back. So beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been incredible on so many levels. So, so many levels. And I'm connecting with it. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk and talk about John Paul Raphael and talk about that crazy experience that grief can be beautiful, which is a hard sell. Mm -hmm. Um, But because, you know, grief and love are in equal measure. So um, we hold the grief knowing that it's our longing for the person that we love. Yeah. I've learned so much both um, to use going forward in working with my clients and in, in teaching people and working with grief and also for my personal life. So many things are connecting with lessons that I'm working on right now of personal development and experiences that I'm having and turning those hard moments into brighter ones and holding the grief and the love and the beauty and all of it and surrendering. Mm. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And if people are interested in the book, I mean, I'm really proud of it. I think it's got beautiful cover too. I had nothing to do with this beautiful cover. (laughs) Um, But I think it really does have a lot to offer. And here's a little picture of John Paul. Oh, adorable. It is a beautiful story of hope. And I believe the message of surrendering to yourself and finding hope and purpose through any of the disappointments of heartaches of life is really applicable to all of us. Um, None of us escape grief, Mm -hmm. but it can be a teacher and it can still be beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jenny. This is so great. Thank you for, for your, your work in serving those of us in the bereaved community and your efforts to bring hope and encouragement there. It's very meaningful. So thank you.
Ditto. Um, where can people reach you? Well, um, the book is available on Amazon. It's available wherever you can buy books. If you're an indie, you like to buy from indie bookstores on my website, elizabethleon.org. There's a link to indie booksellers on there. And you can reach me through my website. My contact information is there. There's a contact form if you have questions or you want to reach out or um, I would love to connect with people. And you can find me on social media at Instagram at letyourselfbeloved1690 or Facebook. It's just my name, Elizabeth Leon. Wonderful. And if you would like someone to travel your grief journey with, travel with you on your grief journey, (laughs) I'm here. Reach out to me. And again, you can find me at grievingcoach.com or you can send me an email, jen at grievingcoach.com. And if you enjoyed this, join us next time in our journey of exploring humanity one heart at a time. Please consider, consider donating to the program so that we can have continue to have more conversations like these in the future. And I'll put the link to that to do that in the show notes. Um, I think that's all for now. Have a fantastic day and be honest with yourself. Surrender to whatever is and be present with that. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. Let yourself be loved. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time, where we share real-life experiences of converting grief into growth. Just a reminder, we will be moving from a weekly to a bi-weekly release schedule starting in January of 2023 with subscription-only content on some of the off-weeks, so be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on exclusive interviews and insights. And if you are struggling with your grief and would like help, I have recently opened the enrollment for my program Converting Grief into Growth. It is an individualized coaching program to support you in and through your grief and or teach you to support others as they do the same. Converting Grief into Growth consists of eight one-to-one sessions that each include a writing prompt and relevant action steps that you can implement immediately. The length of the program is individualized because each journey is different. We all have different losses, different styles of grieving, and different processing speeds. As a result, each journey will be individualized. We will go as fast as possible and as slow as necessary to get you long-lasting and permanent growth in your life. So far, all of my clients have finished the program in two months or less and are still reaping the benefits of their time with me more than a year later. If, however, after two months you feel like you still need more time, you can purchase a monthly add-on for continued support. Through the end of the year, I'm offering Converting Grief into Growth for 50% off. If this is something you'd like to explore further, reach out to me through my website, grievingcoach.com, or send me an email at jenny at grievingcoach.com. We'll schedule a time to chat and see if this is a good fit for you. It's been another amazing conversation here on Share Your Story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in and receiving these stories. If you appreciated this episode, remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on special subscription-only content. If you are struggling with grief and would like to make it more manageable, schedule a call through my website, grievingcoach.com, and I will give you one tool that you can implement today. Until next time. 
Remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story.